welcome to On The Ledge podcast, the show for people who are just popping to the garden centre for a look and in no way end up spending their entire food budget on succulents. No way. Never. This week, we're continuing the show's occasional series on sustainability, interviewing Dave Hansen, who is owner of Sage Garden Greenhouses and the co-host of the Grow Guide podcast. He's been on a mission to ensure his business grows plants sustainably, so we're going to highlight some of the many components of sustainable gardening and find out what to look out for when you're choosing where to source your plants. Plus, I'm answering a question about that old saw, variegation in aroids. But first and most thrilling. If you've ever listened to one of those crime drama podcasts where you never actually find out who done it, you may have been wondering if our story about the mystery peperomia spotted by Charlotte in a Montreal cafe was going to end in a disappointing conclusion. Oh ye of little faith, this is on the Ledge podcast with a listenership so fiercely intelligent and tenacious that once they've got their teeth into an investigation, they're never going to let go. And so if you remember, Charlotte wanted help identifying a red-stemmed peperomia that looked a bit like a Chinese money plant, our old friend Pilea peperomioides. But what's up with the red stems, Charlotte was wondering. We had various suggestions as to what the plant was after I aired this question. And we also had a theory that it was a Chinese money plant that had been given extra carbon dioxide in the greenhouse where it was raised, or that the plant was under stress. But what we really needed was a picture of the plant. I put a call out for Montreal listeners to come forward and a couple did to volunteer themselves to go and check out this mystery plant. And Clara was the listener who ended up going on this mission for On The Ledge. She had a bit of a struggle because the plant wasn't in the same spot as it was when Charlotte visited, but she emailed me with a triumphant picture of the plant a few days ago. So I promptly posted this on Facebook and had some great responses. Everyone got very excited, let's put it that way. But the conclusion was that it is indeed a Pilea peperomioides. And Leon Van Eck, who's a biologist and a listener to On The Ledge, provided an excellent piece of evidence for us. He had two pots of Pilea peperomioides, two divisions made from the original mother plant, one grown in deep shade in the greenhouse and one exposed to a lot more direct sun. And he posted a picture of these two plants and said, note the red petioles on the plant on the left. I hope this explains the phenotypic variation seen in this species as being likely environmental rather than genetic. And I will post that picture in the show notes so you can take a look. If you've never heard that term before, phenotypic variation, then let me just explain. That just means the variations that occur within a plant species. So, for example, if you see a dandelion growing in a crack in the pavement, it will look a lot weaker and smaller than a dandelion growing in a lush lawn where it's getting lots of light, nutrients and food. They're not different species, but they are being affected by the environment that they're in. And it's just the same for this Chinese money plant. Put it in greater sun and the plant reacts by changing the balance of pigments in the foliage. So take a look at your Pilea peperomioides and see how it's looking and maybe try moving it to a sunnier or shadier spot and see if it works for you. Thanks to everyone for your responses to this particular query and it's been such fun. So if you've got a mystery that you'd like on the ledge to solve, then please do send me an email. I would love to help. And so would our band of wonderfully passionate listeners. You just need to email on the ledge podcast at gmail.com and I will do the best I can to help you. Lots of information's great. Pictures, locations, story behind the plant. Waffle on as long as you like and that will help me to answer your question as accurately as I can. And a special greeting to four individuals who are new to the On The Ledge Patreon family. Miranda, Memo, Leah and Sindel, who have all become legends and are no doubt binging on all the extra content you get if you donate $5 a month or more to keep On The Ledge going and funding important things like transcripts, new equipment, travel to interview people and all the stuff 
that makes On The Ledge work. So thank you, thank you, thank you to those four new Patreon subscribers. Find out how you can become a Patreon subscriber in the show notes at janeperone.com. And many thanks also to Deja Vudia, who left a review of On The Ledge on Apple Podcasts, saying, I love listening to Jane and keeping up with her outings. Yes, I love going on outings. It's a great pleasure to be able to do that for On The Ledge. Her Q&A is always very helpful and the jazzy music is always a plus. Star emoji. I don't know what that emoji is called. Perhaps it's not called star emoji. The one with the big star and then two little stars. Uh, It's an underused one. I think we should all start using that. Thank you very much for that review. Five stars, Natch. And if you want to leave a review for On The Ledge and haven't done so, get your skates on, get over to your pod app of choice and say what you want to say about On The Ledge because that way you can help other people find the show and generally give me a warm and fuzzy feeling inside, which is always good. So without any further ado, let's get on with the main interview for this episode. If you haven't listened to episode 103, which is Houseplants and Sustainability Part 1, where I talk about peat-free compost with Sean Higgs of Floralive, the carnivorous plant experts, then do go and have a listen to that first, because that show does lay out some of the issues with peat that we expand on in this episode. But sustainability is about much more than peat, as we find out in our interview with Dave. I'll let Dave introduce himself. So my name is Dave Hansen, and I am the owner co-manager of Sage Garden Greenhouses in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. I'm also the co-host of the Grow Guide podcast and longtime gardening columnist here for for local radio and and a variety of uh, media as well. So sustainability is at the heart of what you do, but was that a sudden epiphany or have you been doing this for a long time? Well, this, this is definitely something that's had an evolution over about the 22 years that I've been involved as a commercial grower. And when I started my business, I was a, as a really young guy and it basically grew out of a, a note when I was at a, a pub one night and I'd been working at a garden center. I thought, to heck with working for someone else. I'm going to start my, my own business and literally was uh, renting greenhouses and kind of doing everything improv. But the one thing that stood out to me right from the very beginning is just how much when I went to other garden centers, they, they kind of smelled of chemicals. And I, I did not like the idea of becoming involved in a business and in an industry where I would go to work and, and be surrounded by basically a chemical aroma. And secondly, when I first started my business, I was very much keen on on growing a lot of unusual edibles, a lot of herbs, and that's all about the sensory and aromatic type experience. And I really wanted to be able to feel confident for my own purposes, but also as I share that with others, that the the plant material that I've I've invited everyone to scratch and sniff and to kind of get intimate with would be very, very healthy. So right from the beginning, this was a, a central guiding message in how I wanted to go about growing things. And and as a young gardener as well, I'd always grown up in an environment where sustainability was important. Both of my parents are very much uh, believers in sustainability and had been hippies out of the 60s and 70s. So I kind of had a background that way as well. But uh, as, the, as the business grew, there was definitely epiphanies along the way in terms of how we could take this to the next level. How can we source organic fertilizers and find solutions for the various problems that come up as you start to grow instead of you know, a few thousand plants, but you start to grow tens of thousands of plants, things do change. I guess when you're growing on a large scale, the issues are different. In fact, I was interviewing somebody about the issue of of peat for a uh, another publication that I write for and they were pointing out which had never really occurred to me before that when you've got a nursery and you're thinking of trying a different potting soil formulation that doesn't include peat or is more sustainable in some way or other you can't just go oh I'm just going to sample a couple of bags of this you know you it's a major operation to change your potting mix and so I guess that's an issue when you're growing on a large scale everything has to be planned far in advance you can't have supplies failing or things going wrong because that's your livelihood. That's a, a really central point. And uh, along our journey towards a more and more sustainable type operation, we've had a few of those hiccups where we had a, a supplier, for example, recommended a new kind of fertilizer. It was called turkey trot that we could mix into our potting mix. And the only thing that went wrong with this is they told us to mix it in at a ratio that was 10 times the actual recommended 
amount. And, and we were like, well, it's springtime. Let's go for it. We're going to mix it into all of these pots here. And and that was a pretty devastating situation when the plants basically became burned, even though it was a, an organic type fertilizer. It was very, very rich. And some plants like basil kind of glowed green and other plants just turned this limp, horrible color really fast. So yeah, you have to plan. You have to be aware of um, a longer term strategy. And I think that's one of the, the reasons that some of the larger operations and even some of the medium and smaller sized operations have been reluctant to, to, to do a lot of experimenting or stayed very uh, focused on maybe, say, their, their tomato plants or their edible section, but not necessarily to undertake to be more of an organic, sustainable type operation throughout the whole facility. Tell me the temperature on peat in Canada. Are people trying to reduce the use of it or is it just seen as something you've got so much of it's not a problem? Well, you're spot on in that I'm right in the the heart of peatland. We are in one of the places in Canada, in Manitoba, where a lot of the horticultural peat is is, uh, dug from the ground and and transported out throughout North America. So it's definitely an industry here. And so that has some bearing on, on people's attitudes for sure. No question, there's a lot of awareness that peat is a non-renewable resource that has tons of issues associated with how it's being removed, how that affects the landscape, and whether that landscape would ever return to what it once was. The peat companies, of course, have tried to argue that they're finding increasingly sustainable ways to to not kind of pillage, I guess you could say, but um, no question that it's not a sustainable option. Locally, because the, the, the industry is so heavy on peat, I would agree that many people talk about this, they think about it, and then fall short on solutions. And I know that in other parts of North America, California, places like that, there's the option of rice hulls. I know that out of uh, the US, there's a company now that's doing a lot with wood fiber that's been turned into basically a growing medium. And locally, we've been trying to work with a company that does a lot with uh, an organic wheat straw. So there are options out there. And a couple of factors I think are coming into play here. One is what you talked about earlier, that is someone has to, to be able to jump into this and feel confident they're going to get the same results because customers are not going to be very, consumers at the end of the day aren't going to be very willing to accept a, a subpar product or a, a product that is much more expensive or a product that is not on schedule if a grower decides to make a change. So we have a lot of research and development, I think, that needs to take place. And you have to have financial resources to do that. So we have to have some companies that are, or, or the government or universities or someone who's willing to take the risk to really do proper trials to be able to introduce to market true alternatives for this big industry we have. But on a smaller scale, I think um, I think home gardeners are finding that there are tons of solutions. And that's the exciting part. Uh, absolutely, things like coconut husk fibers are one of them. Uh, rice hulls are definitely something you can mix with compost and and you can create very nice growing mediums. I don't know about wheat straw yet. It's something we're experimenting with because in, in my part of Canada and the prairies, we have great access to, to wheat straw, not necessarily certified organic, which is what we need to source, but uh, there is some certified organic material available. And so we're working with a local company to try to develop that into an actual alternative to peat moss. So there's lots of R&D happening, but it's a, it's, a, it's one of those uphill kind of slow, kind of slow momentum things. But the, the snowball is starting to grow. That's for sure. Interesting you'd mentioned rice hulls because I'd been investigating alternatives to perlite, which um, is another non-renewable resource, which is, uh, I believe, mined from the ground. And rice hulls were the one thing that came up that were supposedly uh, a good uh, or a potential um, alternative. I did find um, an article, admittedly, at the website perlite.org. So I suspect, um, you know, there's a there's something to be to be aware of in terms of reading the piece. Uh, it's talking about that saying that rice hulls are not a viable alternative to perlite. I I'm going to get I'm going to experiment with it and see how I get on because I really don't like working with perlite. I find it very dusty and unpleasant to work with. So if I can find an organic alternative that is not a a non-renewable resource, I will. But it seems we're in the very, very early days with this kind of of stuff. I I would definitely agree with that. Thinking back to 22 years ago when I got into commercial growing, there was this real transition transition happening out of mineral soil and into the peat-based soilless media, which had a lot of convenience associated with it. And back in the day when, when growers would have that mineral soil, they would load it up with chemicals nonetheless to sterilize it. But I think that there's a return to the concept of living actual soil as the alternative, which can can also have its pros and cons. Certainly topsoil is not a sustainable solution either, because that's being taken off the land and, and leaving behind uh, a very scarred landscape for, for development or whatever is going to happen there. But the idea of returning to actual soils and getting away from the idea of these alternative soilless type 
growing spaces, uh, like the you know growing mediums, I, I think is one of the ways forward. For those of us who are on the other end of this equation as consumers, the trouble is, is it's just so easy to walk into the garden centre and pick up that bag which says might well say organic on it uh, and make us feel good with a picture of a nice house plant on the front and think, oh, we're doing a good thing here. The time and energy which is required to actually do your research. I would agree that the as much as DIY is, is very much a, a great thing that a lot of people love to do various kinds of DIY, there is that convenience factor when you just want to get home and pot your plants. You don't want to spend four hours researching and sourcing rice hulls and doing different things. So hopefully in the next little while, there will be some alternatives. I think that the, the wood fiber pulp, which can be derived from sustainable sources, um, perhaps rice hulls, there are, there are some things that might come along in the near future because there is momentum building on this and consumers have a say, if consumers go to garden centers and they ask, I think that we start to have more of a voice to make change. There's no question. With that in mind, do you produce for direct to consumers or are you producing for garden centers and nurseries who then sell to consumers? What's your... Yeah, sure thing. At Sage Garden, we are very much a a direct to consumer type business. And this is a very intentional decision. At the very beginning, there was kind of a combination of wholesaling to other garden centers and, and selling to customers. But We've really appreciated and have a lot of passion for the opportunity to, to, to both listen and hear from gardeners as to what sort of challenges they're experiencing. They are, of course, craving all kinds of knowledge and information. And that's one of the things we love to do is, is share that back with people. And so as a grower, one of the, the things that has been a strength for us is the opportunity to align our gardener education with the way we do things ourselves. There's a lot of authenticity in it, and I, I sense from our customers that they they really feel that when they come to our business because, uh, you know, it, 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 it does smell good and there's not that chemical uh, aroma and they can see the products that we're using and, and we're kind of a, a medium-sized garden center. We're not a, a gigantic place and we're not a little tiny place either, but there's enough of a scale where they can see that the operation is happening right there and they can see what we're doing, that there's a lot of transparency. And so we appreciate that. And so that gives people a chance to to really ask us how we do things and why we do things and, and how that can translate into helpful suggestions for them at home. We'll be back with more from Dave shortly. But first, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. Why do so many deodorants smell so, well, weird? I have no idea, but I'm excited to try Native's coconut and vanilla scented deodorant because that's a smell I'm happy to put in my armpits. Native's deodorants come in a range of enticing scents, including lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. Prefer no scent at all in your deodorant? They do that too. Native's products are not tested on animals and they're free from aluminium or aluminium if you prefer, parabens and talc. So why not try out Native today? For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code on the ledge during checkout. Shipping is free on all orders to the United States, Canada, Australia, France, Germany and the UK. So for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code on the ledge during checkout. What things should we as consumers be looking out for when we go into or when we're buying from a supplier uh, in terms of red flags or things that we need to look out for that we might not be aware of? So, for example, OK, this might come, this plant may come in a fancy coir pot that's recyclable but actually it's full of neonicotinoids or some other there's some other issue are are there sort of hidden things that we need to be aware of when it comes to sustainability that's not always obvious from looking at the plant you've touched on probably the central problem here is there's some fairly obvious things that a lot of people put out there to sort of create an impression or you know to do their part it's not always just greenwashing but sometimes trying to take some steps towards sustainability but then the industry, uh, wherever you are, whether you're in North America, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in Great Britain, definitely this has become a global industry. And so a plant that you find at the shelf of your local garden center probably hasn't started life there. It might have started at a cutting farm in Africa or in South America or in Southeast Asia. And so along the way, there's a lot of different types of regulations that might govern uh, how plants are growing in different regions. There's definitely export requirements for chemical drenches. There's all kinds of different applications of rules. And so your plant that arrives on your local garden center shelf has had a long journey, and there's a high likelihood that it hasn't been a very organic one. So 
it's important to try to, I, I think, and as an, I will be fully you know, honest here, I'm an independent garden center operator and gardening educator. So my goal is to try to have those conversations with people. And I encourage people to come to me with these questions. But when you go to many garden centers, it can be difficult to find out the provenance of plants, really. They might say, well, we grow them here, but probably that means that they've gotten in plug material that has come from quite far away. So starting to get to know some of the the specifics. So what kinds of chemicals have been applied? Are there neonics applied? I know in in, uh, in North America, there's still a lot of controversy about this. And many of the commercial growers did not want to have a program where you'd have to label plants as treated with neonics. But consumers started to demand this. And so in some jurisdictions, that is a requirement, but it's very inconsistent at this point in time. A lot of the houseplant industry suffers from this problem because, because these plants travel from a very global perspective and they cross boundaries and borders, there is often export requirements to have them be drenched. And the most common types of, of chemical drenches for pest management are neonic type insecticides. So there's a lot of things that we just would never see and we'd never be able to analyze just by looking at the plant. So we have to be confident about asking the questions and try to get to know the reputation and the the style of the local grower. And there's lots of ways you can do that. You can see if those folks are involved in the local gardening community. Are they are they talking about these issues? Are they trying to create a conversation around these exact topics that are very important? Or are they trying to kind of not talk about those things too much? So there's lots of little clues, but it's important to ask questions because there's not going to be a visual reference or any kind of signage at a garden center really likely to give you the full answer. Uh, let's just backtrack and just explain to anyone who's not uh, fully aware what neonicotinoids are. So these are systemic insecticides which are used um, on have been used on plants very widely. So rather than just um, acting at the point of the leaf or the stem, they're going into the root system and the, the vascular system of the plant and acting from within. Um, um, and these have been linked with declining bee populations haven't they so it's so not something that those of us who are trying to um garden sustainably would be endorsing i suspect <laughs> i suspect to say the least that's kind of it and, and i think it's really um just to because i i hear various aspects of this conversation all the time and so some people will say well you know but my you know my rubber tree which is going to be in my office is never going to be exposed to a bee so what's the big deal and behind the scenes, that plant may have been growing at a, at a nursery that has an outdoor production facility where the plants are regularly in the vicinity of bees. And so with the application of this style of insecticide, which is very long lived within the tissues of that plant, it is known through science for sure at this point that it, it is impacting bees. So we have to think about the bigger context. So it's not just about where that plant is going to end up in your home or office or never going to be outdoors when you ultimately grow it on but where did that plant come from and how is that affecting uh, someone else's ecosystem and someone else's backyard because sometimes we forget that uh, this is a very global thing and so it's not just about how it's affecting our, our home our office our neighborhood but how it's affecting the growers somewhere else in their local communities I think you could be sure if a plant doesn't say anything about neonics, then, you know, if some if a plant is neonicotinoid free, I'm sure that the supplier or grower will be shouting about it. If there's no mention of it, I think that's probably a, uh, a possible indication that your plant has been treated with these systemic insecticides. It's pretty common. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I know here in the UK that there's a lot of pressure, consumer pressure and government pressure to stop uh, companies from using these on plants. So it is starting to change. Um, but that's a really, really good point. As you say, just because your plant isn't going to be into contact with bees, we've got to think about the wider picture. Um, and I guess this may be this fever for a lot of um, tropical plants is something that it's worth kind of thinking about in this context, because while it's lovely to go and pick up, uh, go to a big box store and pick up a really cheap um, philodendron or rubber plant, you do if you if you have if you were laid out for you what what that plant's been through and where it's been and the miles involved maybe you'd feel a bit differently about that plant i i think there there's oftentimes there's that veil between us and what's happened to the things that we buy that when it's lifted we're a bit horrified uh, yes, uh, I have this fantasy about having a, 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 a podcast or a TV show or something where we just go to any given store and we sort of take our camera and we look at a product and then we get to go and trace its origin. You know, everything in the modern Western world really has a has a long journey to get to the shelf. And so we often forget about that. And it's, it is important to consider for sure. 
I guess this is where kind of disrupting this, gosh, I'm getting all sort of political here, but disrupting the, the, the system is is kind of powerful in that obviously independent growers like, like yourself are doing amazing work in terms of providing a totally different set of, um, a totally different ethos around the plants that you're producing. And also as as houseplant growers lots of houseplant growers are using the internet to swap and propagate and 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 sell plants to each other that hopefully will be slightly more sustainable than a plant that's that's coming from a big box store i guess it's never going to stop the amount of plants that we're all buying but at the same time the more people know about propagation hopefully the more plants can spread in a different way yeah i mean it's it's exciting to get those mail order plants but at the same time it's it's very exciting to go to your local local uh, horticultural society garden swap and there's more and more interesting varieties available and I, the, the one thing that i always i'm amazed by I, I live in the middle of canada in the middle of the prairies in a in a medium-sized city and i always figure that particular plants would just never be occurring here in someone's collection. And then I find someone who's got the rarest of rare plants. And I, I just realized that there is a tremendous amount of plant material already close at hand. And a lot of times the folks who have those very interesting and rare and collectible type things are passionate to the point where they like to share them and, and, and share the idea that the, they've got this special plant and they've got special knowledge that they can pass along to you and might want to trade for. So yeah, the first place I would always look for any plant on your wish list is close to home at garden clubs, at local horticultural societies, on local online forums and uh, specialty collector groups because it's often right here. Yeah, that's so true. And there's nothing more satisfying than propagating a plant after all. Oh, that yeah. is the most satisfying thing. But I guess we have to reflect on the fact that we the people are not going to stop buying plants from these big big companies. So so what as consumers do you think we can do? Is it really a question of asking those questions when we're 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 in that store and making every level of that organization aware of the fact that we want to know this information or is there anything more we can be doing to kind of pressurize big sellers to get with the sustainability issues? Yeah, this is a complicated one because as someone who's in business selling plants, I've often felt this tension between my need to support my livelihood by selling stuff and at the same time uh, be true to my values and make sure that we're always kind of asking ourselves the tough questions so we can be, always be going forward authentically. And so I, then, I, then I wonder as a consumer coming to any kind of a business, how do we how do we demand more from businesses without just kind of giving up or feeling hopeless or losing the fun of all that we're passionate about? And so when it comes to plants, we want to keep this fun and exciting and hopeful and all those good reasons we like to grow stuff. So what do we do? I believe the government could actually be a little bit more involved in, in regulating pesticides and some of the large, large companies that are behind things like the neonics and sort of the the mainstreaming, the absolute mainstreaming of the chemical approach to growing as much as global warming and all the issues associated with uh, sustainability are are really gaining momentum right now. And, and even younger and younger generations are leading the way on this. I think that in the bigger picture of the industry, which is such a large thing, it's being controlled literally by companies that don't really want to change. They have a large interest in maintaining that chemical status quo, quo and finding I guess, new ones and finding ways to, uh, you know, present a different light on those chemicals. But at the end of the day, we can do things differently. And that's one of the things that excites me is that there's always a solution. So we come to hear that, well, we have to use the neonics because it's a safer way to control aphids versus the old style of spraying. And so some growers just kind of acquiesce and just say, that's how it is. And so some home, home consumers are going to say, well, I don't want aphids either. So I can accept that. But the exciting part is that there there are better ways of doing things. There's always new ways of doing things. And one of the passions I have found is just realizing how much more easy really it has been to grow plants using a, a living soil organic approach because you build a lot of the resilience and immunity into the plant through the soil. And this is very much supported by science. So it's sort of like a, a reframing because there's the the mainstream and what we hear all the time. And then there's sort of these little things that happen out there and they say they gain some momentum, but there's there's significant momentum now to the idea of understanding how an organic approach could actually maybe transcend the chemical approach. And as that starts to shift, I think home gardeners can legitimately ask for better and better quality, new ways of doing things. And I, I really think it has to be a question of 
petitioning uh, you know, governments around chemical control, uh, I think asking at the consumer level, uh, continuing to do those plant swaps rather than buying at nurseries if they're not going to cooperate. There, there's lots of things you can do. Work in, If you work in the industry, uh, talk to your bosses. I know lots of local uh, other garden center participants, uh, employees at garden centers who, who come and talk to us at Sage because they want to have a conversation with their their grower or their employer about how they could do things more sustainably, how they could affect change. And as they are able to demonstrate the value of doing things in a different way and how different audiences are more in tune and wanting these changed methods, then things actually do start to become different. So tell me your sort of checklist of things that you've that you've changed or, or ways that you've become sustainable. We've talked a bit about peat. We've talked a bit about neonics. What are the other elements in the jigsaw that come together to make your business as sustainable as possible for sure well i'm going to i'm going to start at the very beginning and just say that the first things that came to mind obviously were like pest management the heavy duty chemicals involved in that so that was easy to check off there's lots of solutions when it comes to biological pest management and just different kinds of grower practices and diligence that will allow you to not have to use any kind of heavy-handed chemicals so that was almost an easy one then the second thing was finding a good solution for a healthy nutrient system on a larger scale. So how could we find a compost-based organic soil mix and fertilizer program that would be scalable so that on a commercial level, we could actually afford to do this and offer the plants at a, at a reasonable cost? So that was that took a while. But but after, after some time, after maybe about five or six years of being in business, we were able to find a, a great solution for that. And that's just become better and better and better over time. And then we started to really look at, okay, we're in a very cold climate and we have to do a lot of heating. So how could we improve upon that? If we're going to do local growing, is it better to just source plants from somewhere else and have them trucked in? Or is it better to invest in the natural gas and the and the uh, propane that we were using? And we decided that we could do much better on that front. And we invested in a geothermal heating system, which means that we're, uh, we're not using any carbon for that portion of our heating system. It's just all heat that is... Um, being pulled from the ground. And the other benefit to that, and we sometimes don't think of this in a cold climate, but cooling a greenhouse is also hugely energy intensive. So with the geothermal system, we're able to both heat and cool in a much more efficient way and not using the propane and natural gas to the extent that we were before. So that was actually a pretty innovative one. I I can't think of any other local commercial garden center that has gone down that avenue. And so that's exciting. Um, then we, about five or six years ago, we started doing something called naturescape training with our staff. And what naturescaping is, is a way of looking at your, your plant relationships, uh, way beyond just sort of organic, but thinking about the ecosystem approach. And as much as this sounds like very much an outdoor thing, you can even think about this with your indoor plants and, and the ecosystem that, that occurs in the soil and some of the beneficial insects that might be in indoors like spiders and and even uh, lady beetles and things like that that could be very helpful and look at ways to create healthy habitats so that those those uh, supporting microorganisms and beneficials will be able to thrive in relationship with your plants which once again just makes your job as a as a gardener as a grower a lot easier so we we really started to think about that as both an indoor and an outdoor kind of education point both for ourselves but also in our conversations with our customers Another huge thing was that as a business, we felt really disgusted, honestly, by the amount of waste involved in terms of packaging and in terms of the cardboard that all the plants arrive in and all the pallets and the plastic wrap. So we started to really be very aware and sort of audit how we were managing that and and being sure that when we recycled things, we were putting them into a recycling program that would actually end up uh, having the items be recycled as opposed to going to the landfill, making sure that all of our cardboard was going into the recycling. We participated in a closed loop plastic pot recycling program where the, the containers went back to the manufacturer and we were turned back into new pots. So we really looked at that. Unfortunately, recycling has become a really challenging point as a lot of the nursery plastics are no longer recyclable or there's very few programs that will actually accept them. And so for going forward into 2020, and I think this will be a huge sort of change over the next couple of years globally, is we're we're actually abandoning plastic pots in favor of um, a wood fiber type, uh, essentially a kind of a paper pot that we're going to be replacing. And when it comes to houseplants, uh, this is an interesting one because houseplants are typically grown for a longer period of time. And they're also, they need to be presented quite nicely in the garden center. So it's taken a little bit of effort to find a, a non-plastic container that's going to make sense for houseplants. But I think we've got a solution for 2020 and we're very excited about that. 
I wish you were in my neighbourhood, Dave. You sound great. I think it's awesome that all the things that you're doing to try to make your business sustainable, and presumably after 22 years, you're still going. So that must mean that it's, uh, if not highly profitable, then at least enough to keep you uh, in a reasonable income. Well, you know, that's uh, thank you for asking, because that's actually a, a little bit the hardship of uh, being a leader sometimes. But uh, I can think back to conversations we've had with suppliers and and colleagues in the industry who said, well, you guys are crazy. Why why would you bother doing those things? But I think where it's left us after 22 years is in a position where people do recognize our, our long-term commitment to these things and not just sort of jumping in as we hear about different buzzwords. And I think people do consider that we are being mindful and trying to deeply think about how we could be a better business and a better um, part of the green industry. And that feels good. So as much as it's been maybe a bit of a slower road, and there's been times when we felt like we've had to make choices where, uh, I'll give you a really good example, actually, citrus plants in our area, in North in, in Canada, most citrus plants are brought in from the US and they're grafted in either California or Texas or Florida. But there's very, very strict rules and in the U.S. that are by the EPA that require that those plants be treated with neonics. And since we don't deal in any plants that have been at any point treated with neonics, we just can't sell citrus plants anymore. So that has been a hardship sometimes because people come and they would love to have citrus plants and everyone loves to have the potted citrus plants and they see them everywhere else. And they haven't necessarily got any clue that there's this rule that requires that those plants be treated in such a way that they're going to have the neonics in them. And so we've had to give up that part of our, our revenue stream, but that's okay. I think once we start to have those conversations with people and they understand why we've made that change. And once we started to look at different ways, maybe we could grow citrus in house from, from cuttings and do our own kind of production. Maybe going forward, we have some of our own solutions. It just, didn't really matter. So that's the thing is to remain, I think, very true to your goals and to try to be a little bit all in. I, I think this is a topic where it's important to not just be a little bit here and there, but I think you want to kind of go as deep as you possibly can. I think the going back to the point about waste and plastic waste, that's I think that's a real hidden but serious issue. If you go to any of the flower shows here in the UK, there's always a bit round the back where there's just oh. huge amounts of waste and it just makes me want to cry. Yeah. Um, and even when you get plants, you know, you get plants delivered. Um, I mean, I recently got a wonderful delivery after I did an episode on the strawberry saxifrage, uh, saxifrages stolonifera. I inevitably, as always happens, ended up buying some more um, cultivars that I didn't have from a nursery here in the UK mail order. And I was so happy when it turned up because it turned up in a cardboard box and I opened it up. And it was filled with straw. Oh, wow. And the plants were packed in straw. And I was like, that is just, I'm so happy now. That is wonderful news. So all news. the straw just went into my compost heap. And the cardboard box went into my compost heap. And there was a bit of tape, which it was in you know, a small amount of tape, which went in the bin. And that was it. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is so good. I haven't got that big pile of plastic that normally comes out. Um, but I guess for bigger scale businesses, it's it's like ch moving a tanker. It's it's going to be a slow change. But we can do this, can't we? There there must be alternatives and ways of recycling and, and finding compostable materials that we can use well it's kind of like the in a way the biggest businesses could be the ones who could make the biggest difference because if mm. they can commit and they can they have the resources to implement fairly quickly some of the alternatives then it then we have very large scale change happen in a, in a faster way but in the meantime for sure smaller businesses niche businesses i think it's a good opportunity for for all of us who can be creative and can um, have those conversations directly with our customers to make their day just as, as this mail order nursery did when they, they made those really important choices to, to have a very sustainable mail order plant arrive at your doorstep. That's very impressive. I love the straw idea. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I've had a few different plants recently. I also had some plants delivered in those um, starchy peanut things, yeah. I don't, packing peanuts, which also just go on the compost heap. Uh, although actually I didn't put those, I actually put them away because I thought I'm going to reuse those when I send somebody a plant. Definitely. Um, but it, it's, there are, there are solutions. And I think, as you say, companies can earn so many brownie points for uh, embracing um, change and trying to make their plants more sustainable. On the plastic, I mean, I've got a heck of a lot of plastic pots, which all get reused many, many times and um, get given, you know, I, I give a lot of plants away. I 
sell plants to raise money for good causes and things and so they, they're very useful but I have been switching all my cacti and succulents over to terracotta pots but when I'm doing that I was thinking gosh I can see why terracotta is not great on a bigger scale because lovely though it is it's so fragile and um you know i can i can see the downsides but i love growing stuff in terracotta i found it find it absolutely brilliant for uh cacti and succulents particularly and i guess we're going to be seeing a lot of different options coming on the market as as alternatives to plastic plastic pots in the in the last three years i'd say terracotta has been outselling our, our other kinds of plastic con- or plastic containers uh for right. houseplants for sure that people have been embracing it. it looks lovely it fits into so many different styles and settings and of course yeah it comes from the earth yeah yeah i, I absolutely love it and i put it i've just I, I run a facebook group for my local area which is a kind of a produce swapping and garden equipment swapping stuff and i put out a call out saying if anyone's got terracotta pots languishing in their sheds so i'm (laughs) i'm gathering in more terracotta pots which is fantastic and um uh yeah so it's been it's been quite nice and it's a lovely experience and some of those terracotta pots i know despite my clumsiness are probably about 50 years old and that's a wonderful thing to have a pot that's just been around for a really long time. Fingers crossed I don't break it. Oh, anymore. the pressure's on. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm really clumsy, so it's not good. But I do I do, t- I do, t- try to take care of those terracotta pots because they are very special. Uh, it's, been, it's really interesting to hear all these things that you're up to. Is there any issues that you've really come up against a brick wall and you just can't figure out a way to make a particular aspect of your business more sustainable than than you've managed right now that's a great question um you know we're still working on the on the heating issue and a lot of people within the north american market would relate to the fact that part of the part of the year that it's going to be some pretty intensive energy used to grow the plants so that's one even though we implemented this this beautiful geothermal technology in in our production greenhouse there uh, it, it was an expensive undertaking and that's got the longer term kind of capital cost associated with the return on investment and all that kind of complicated business stuff but I would say that if if we could have a a better kind of a growing system for the cold climate uh, environment where we do our greenhouse production, a lot of the greenhouse structures available commercially for any kind of larger scale commercial facility are, are not particularly innovative when it comes to energy resourcefulness. So, and especially in the medium size, once again, like very large growers might have these incredible budgets to to build research quality greenhouses that have incredible insulation on the sides and everything. But for the average kind of garden center owner, you can't really invest in that. So I would love to be able to have a better growing facility. And one of the dilemmas we have is we still do have to source plant material from all over the place. It, it is difficult to keep up with uh, the ins and outs of what we would love to offer when to get the volume of plant material sometimes to get us going, we have to source it from, you know, Florida or, you know, somewhere quite far away from us. So we, we, we can't, we haven't been able to transcend that at this point in time. There's so many things that are only available from cuttings. We can't grow them from seed. We have been working hard to source more certified organic material when it comes to both cuttings and seeds. And that's been very exciting because when we started into the certified organic sourcing, it really was limited to herbs, veggies, and a smattering of, maybe a couple of flowers. But nowadays, we can actually source quite a few of our, our perennial type things and some house plants as certified organic seeds. And that does make me feel really good because those growers are working hard to be great stewards of the land. And the more we can support that, the more there will be availability of certified organic ornamental type stock material. Yeah, that's it. That is exciting. Change is a coming, Dave. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. And, and thank you very much for sharing your experiences. And let's hope that in the next five years, we're going to see some amazing strides forward in this area. And um, thank you for being one of the people leading the way with this. It's fantastic to hear. Well, I, re- I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about this today. It, it is a, a passion and it is something that uh, I'm, ex- I'm very excited to know that more and more people are, are caring about and acting on. So great. I, re- I really appreciate being part of the conversation. Thank you. Thanks to Dave and do check out his podcast, The Grow Guide Podcast, which has got some really interesting recent episodes, including one on indoor composting, which I've been listening to. I'll include all the details about Dave in the show notes at janeperone.com. And now it's time for question of the week. Paul from Australia got in touch to ask a question about Raphidophora tetrasperma. 
a plant that's often sold under loads of different names, including Monstera Minima, Mini Monstera, Philodendron Ginny and Philodendron Minima. Now, the actual proper Latin name is Raphidophora tetrasperma. It does, however, look a bit like uh, a Swiss cheese plant with dwarfed leaves. It's not actually that closely related to Monstera deliciosa, but it's a great plant if you happen to want that look of the monstera without the size. He says that he's just started seeing what he hopes to be variegation in his Raphidophora tetrasperma. It's early days, but I will be encouraging this to flourish. Any thoughts? So Paul sent a couple of photos through and what he's seeing is a very small flash of a paler mint green colour in one of the leaves. So what do we think? Does such a thing as a variegated Raphidophora tetrasperma even exist? Well, it does exist. Yes, there are a very, very few plants around that are displaying this kind of variegation. There's a YouTuber called Legends of Monstera who has a video from the International Aroid Show earlier this month, which contains footage of a swap of a variegated tetrasperma with a monstra oblique. Can you believe that swap? And the variegated tetrasperma belong to plant that plant, a guy called Oscar, who runs a rare aroid shop. And I, th I think he's in Europe, actually, but he certainly his shop ships in Europe and the US. So yes, this is possible that you have got a variegated tetrasperma. It's a very rare thing. There are lots of pictures of this plant on plant that plant's feed, uh, I have to say it's not setting me on fire as a variegated plant. The variegation is what I would call, I think he calls it, what's the name he's called it? It's mint, mint mini, I think he's calling it. And it is a combination of plain green and a mint green. So it's not like an amazing pure bone white type variegation that you, you see on some variegated plants. Um, it's quite subtle, but obviously it's rare and that's why people want it. So what can we say about this? Well, I've had a few messages actually over the past few months from people who see tiny little areas areas of paler green on their leaves and assume that that means that they're getting some variegation. First of all, I would say the thing to remember about variegation of this kind is that it's chimeral variegation. So let's get into what chimeral variegation is once more. Within the plant, cells are with different genotypes, that means that the genetic recipe of the plant exists in one plant on tissues that are next to each other, but one layer of tissue will have one genotype and another layer of tissue will have another genotype. I'm going to post some links uh, to explain this in more detail because it is getting kind of complicated to explain. But basically, where you get variegation, depending on what combination of genes you've got going on in those different layers, that affects how the leaf will look. So you might see that there's a bit of variegation coming through in a leaf and it's just a very small amount of the tissue that's affected and that may happen on an individual leaf and not be repeated on any other leaves. Chimeral variegation is generally quite unstable, particularly the kind known as sectorial chimeral variegation because only half of each layer of cells is mutated. The other half remains, in inverted commas, normal. So that is very, very unstable. And I think this is probably what you're seeing when you get a tiny little flash of a paler green. One segment of a layer of cells has mutated and is displaying this lighter colour because it's perhaps lacking chlorophyll but the layers below contain chlorophyll so that's why the leaf doesn't appear white it just appears a paler green. And it's worth bearing in mind that there are other reasons that paler areas on leaves might occur. Pest damage is one thing that to definitely check for. Uh, spider mites can suck the sap out of leaves and make them look paler. Uh, you may have other pests that are damaging the leaf and underneath and causing a different effect on the top, which you may not have noticed. And the other cause of such mottling can be a virus that is affecting your plant particularly the mosaic virus or tobacco mosaic virus, which does affect a wide range of plants. And I'm seeing a lot of Monstera adansonii with this condition at the moment. How will you know that this is going on rather than variegation? Well, the virus will reduce the vigorousness of the plant and will eventually kill it. 
So if your plant is not putting out any new growth and it has a mottled look and the underside of the leaves, the veins look really yellow, that could be the issue. Unfortunately, mosaic virus, well, there isn't any cure. So if you think your plant's got this condition, immediately isolate it from all your other plants and keep an eye on it. The advice generally is to just remove and destroy that plant. But obviously, you might want to be absolutely sure that it is the virus. So separate your plant completely from every other plant you have and keep a very close eye on it. And if it is mosaic virus, then I'm afraid that plant is heading for the bin. Don't add it to a compost pile because the virus can still spread that way. Looking at your pictures, Paul, though, I think you've just got a very small amount of sectorial variegation going on. Uh, keep an eye on your plant and you never know, you may be lucky and you may find that the plant starts producing much more variegation. You might want to try varying conditions to see what it's going to look like. You might want to try adding extra light or taking away light to see if that makes any difference. But really, this is something that's out of your control. The plant will either stay plain green or it may become more variegated. I love Raphidophora tetrasperma and I'm not that bothered about the variegated form. So, yeah, just try to enjoy the plant you've got and not worry too much. Obviously, it's lovely to have a plant that's worth thousands of pounds or dollars, but really... But I suspect that isn't going to be the fate of your plant in this case, Paul. I will post the picture of Paul's leaf in the show notes and I would love to hear from any plant biologists out there. If I've got something wrong or if you've got something to add to this discussion, please do get in touch because I'm only going on what I have gleaned from my research and I would love to hear from anyone who has specialist knowledge in this area. So do get in touch and also get in touch if you've got a question for On The Ledge podcast. On The Ledge podcast at gmail.com is the place to come. I'll be teeing up a Q&A special sometime before Christmas to answer a whole batch of your questions. So don't despair if your question hasn't been answered yet. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next Friday. So join me then for more foliage-based excitement. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, Quasi Motion by Kevin MacLeod, and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward. The ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Hefdone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>